You are listening to Weight Loss Made Real, and this is episode 83. I'm your host, master weight loss coach and author, Cookie Rosenblum. Today and every Tuesday, I'm going to coach you and teach you how to end your emotional eating, how to bust through your binges, and how to leave all your overeating habits in the past. So if you just found me, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Today, I have a special interview a special guest. So get comfortable and get ready to learn. Today, we're lucky to have my guest, JJ Virgin. Let me tell you a little bit about her. JJ Virgin is a celebrity nutrition and fitness expert. She teaches her clients about weight loss, but also mastering their mindset so they can lead bigger, better lives. She's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, The Virgin Diet, The Virgin Diet Cookbook, JJ Virgin's Sugar Impact Diet, and JJ Virgin's Sugar Impact Diet Cookbook. Her memoir is called The Miracle Mindset, A Mother, Her Son, and Life's Hardest Lessons. And this latest book explores the lessons that she learned in strength and positivity after her son Grant was the victim of a really brutal hit-and-run accident. JJ hosts the popular podcast called JJ Virgin Lifestyle Show, and she's a regular writer for the Huffington Post, Rodale Wellness, and other major blogs and magazines. We're going to talk to JJ today about a number of subjects. And when we're done, I will include a link so that you can learn more about her and all that she does and all that she has to offer in the show notes. So here we go into our interview. Welcome, JJ. I'm so glad that you're here to talk to my listeners. I've been a fan for years, and I've read most of your books. And the reason I invited you here today is to give my listeners some perspective on a couple of subjects that they wonder about related to eating. So let me ask you this first. How would you describe what you do in the world of eating? And how did you come to this field? I do everything around food intolerance and carbohydrate intolerance. And really what happened was I was a personal trainer way back when I was like me and body by Jake, like literally 30 years ago. <laughs> and it became super, I was in school, I was studying biomechanics and exercise phys. And uh, what I realized really quickly was that you could not exercise enough to compensate for poor eating. And a lot of these people were coming in, they wanted to get healthier, they wanted to get in better shape, but they didn't really want to address their diet. And it just doesn't work. And so I started reading everything I could. And what I kind of like latched onto first was I was like getting a lot of misinformation. Um, most of what I got at first was everything was about calories in, calories out. Our body was a bank account. If you wanted to lose weight, you had to create a caloric deficit. And I was trying this. Again, this is what my professors were teaching me. I was doing it with my clients. And it was not working. I'm not insane, thankfully. <laughs> and right. I decided that I was going to have to figure out what was going on. And I got fascinated by everything that could get in the way of you losing weight. Because most of my clients at the time were coming to me because they wanted to lose weight. And what could cause you to gain weight? And one of the things that I stumbled upon was this food sensitivity test. And what I started to see was that I would run these tests on people working with some of the local docs and people would come in frustrated with gas and bloating and energy and headaches and joint pain and 
those things would go away literally in a matter of days. But the side effect too was that weight just started to drop off. It was like effortless. Finally, you know, things that they've been struggling with, working so hard, all of a sudden it was just easy for them. And that's when I became fascinated with this whole idea that our body isn't a, you know, a bank account. It's a chemistry lab and that food's information and that we have to make sure that we're, and it's going to be different for everybody. That's why we have to go through our own personal discovery process to figure out which foods work for our personal chemistry lab and which foods don't. And that's pretty much what you covered in the virgin diet. Is that right? Yeah, the virgin diet was all about food intolerance, really from what I'd seen with all the food sensitivity testing. I realized that there were seven common offenders that maybe you didn't react to all of these, but you were reacting to probably at least a few of them. And that when you pulled these out and swapped them for healing foods, like dramatic stuff happened. And then after I wrote that book, I kept getting so many questions about sugar and you know, how many carbs and sugar should I eat? And can I have artificial sweeteners? And what about honey? It's natural. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So like, okay, um, I guess I need to go deeper over here because sugar was one of the seven foods I pulled out in the virgin diet. Because I mean, come on, how can you design a healthy diet with sugar? And you can't. You know, contrary to what people believe, no, you don't need sugar. Um, my mom actually said that to me. He goes, well, we need sugar. I'm like, no, we don't need sugar. Um, <laughs> our body will make it just fine from, you know, the right. carbohydrates. You don't right. need to mainline it. But I just realized there was so much confusion. And just like with looking at our body wrong, looking at it like a bank account, we were also looking at sugar all wrong. And it was really, uh, you know, what upsets me, Cookie, is seeing people trying so hard right? Trying so hard, they're just following the wrong set of rules. And so they blame themselves instead of thinking, huh, maybe there's something wrong with the process. Exactly. Exactly. So let me back up just a little bit. You talk about food intolerance or sensitivity. What's, is there a difference between intolerance, sensitivity, and allergy? Yes. So back when I first started in this, everything was really about allergies and, you know, and don't open the peanuts on the plane, right? Most people know if they have a food allergy because they get it, they break out in hives or their throat closes up. They know if they have that. That is not what I'm talking about. When I talk about a sensitivity or an intolerance, and you could really use those interchangeably, I'm looking at a couple of different ways that we can become intolerant to a food. And the this can happen, this can either be genetics, you know, you've got celiac disease or lactose intolerance or fructose malabsorption, or you can have a hormonal issue with, you know, your insulin resistant or leptin resistant. But the most common one by far is this IgG food sensitivity due to something called leaky gut syndrome. And so I I put all of them into play because your body doesn't really care why a food's not working for you. But I see that leaky guts become so prevalent and prominent that that really takes a main stage in the book because we, you know, it's something that you can heal. You just need to, to know what to do with it. You know, mm-hmm. most of us have back... 20 years ago, when I started talking about leaky gut, I literally, people say there's no such thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, there is. You know, <laughs> There was no such thing as that or adrenal exhaustion. I'm like, oh, right. yeah, there is. You right. know? And so. is it common? I mean, are more are certain people more prone to it than others? And how would you know you had it? So I think it's crazy common. I'm willing to bet, like, especially when you become an adult, but you know, it's, it's happening earlier and earlier in kids too, that I, I'm, I'm guessing nearly everybody has it. And here's why. Leaky gut is where your small intestine becomes more permeable. It's a semi-permeable membrane, but it becomes more permeable, wholly leaky. And it happens because of a variety of reasons. Number one is stress. 
and your body's a history book. So if you're under stress, you know, this isn't, unless you fix it, it's not mm-hmm. going to go away. And, you know, you look at now, like uh, when I was a little kid, things weren't stressful. Like, you know, I mean, the, you know, maybe a kid was mean to you on the playground, but you didn't have cyberbullying. You didn't have <laughs> right. all of like, Things are super stressful now, just even all this technology allowing, making, interrupting kids sleep, which is a huge form of stress. Then fructose, fructose actually pokes holes. It makes your gut more permeable. So the prevalence of fructose in our diet is also super problematic. And somewhere along the line, agave and fruit juice concentrate and all these sweeteners became accepted as like healthy when they're nothing. They're no way are they healthy. You know, fruit juice is is just another soda, just doesn't have the artificial colorings. And then gluten's another one that actually makes your gut more permeable, releases something called zonulin that makes your gut more permeable. So when you look at gluten now, it's just like they put it in everything. Thankfully, over the last couple of years, that's really started to turn around with just the recognition that there is such a thing as being intolerant to gluten, that it's not just celiac disease. Right. And so, and then a lot of the medications, a lot of the pain medications, you know, all these over-the-counter NSAIDs, they actually make your gut more permeable. So then you react more to a lot of these foods, which creates more joint pain, which makes you use more of the thing, you know, like one of the classic signs of food intolerance is joint pain or headaches. And then you use these medications that actually give you more leaky gut, gives you more food intolerance, it creates more joint pain and headaches. So you can see the problem with all of it. So those are some of the most classic reasons that we get leaky guts. I mean, you look at and you go, well, kind of like who, who wouldn't have it at, at this point, right? It's, it's so common. And then you look at the most common foods that trigger it, gluten, gluten, dairy, soy, and eggs were top as I was testing. And then under that were corn and peanuts. And peanuts have some other issues as well with the aflatoxin mold and high lectins. They're one of the highest lectin foods, which also causes leaky gut. And you kind of look at that and go, well, how could someone not have it? And some of the most common signs of leaky gut are also things that we've just kind of come to think are normal, like gas and bloating, can't lose weight, joint right. pain, autoimmune disease, which is the biggest thing happening to everybody now that we're just starting to realize how many diseases are actually autoimmune, headaches, fatigue, skin issues. And so I think I used to do a lot of food sensitivity testing with doctors to look for this. And then I went, everyone I'm testing is showing up with something. I never see someone not show up with something. And as soon as I had them run the test while we were waiting for the test results to come back, I started to pull those top foods I kept seeing because every time I ran a test, I'd see that it was usually at least a couple of these foods and sometimes all of them. And I thought, well, why don't I just pull them while we're waiting for the test results? And then all of a sudden I went, we actually probably don't even need to spend the money on the test because what I'm finding is, you know, they're getting such great results while they're waiting for the test results. (laughs) You don't need to do the test, you know, we could just save that money. And I don't believe yet, Cookie, that there's one way to look for food intolerance. Like there's three different ways you could become intolerant to a food. But, you know, one of the challenges is our foods, there's so many things going on with our food now. It's like, okay, well, is it the GMO? Is it what they fed the chicken? Is it like what's really creating the problem? And if you did a test and the test said, oh, you're fine with dairy, but you eat dairy and your joints ache and your skin breaks out, what difference does the test result make? You know that it didn't work for you, right? You're really, we're best to be our own personal health detective and use our own chemistry lab as, as a way to identify it. We just, you know, for the most part, we get so divorced between how we feel and what's at the end of our fork. And that's part of what this whole process is with the virgin diet is to dial us back to going, okay. 
how do I feel when I eat this? Is this working for me? Right, right. So people can make intelligent decisions based on the feedback they're getting when they're eating these foods. Yeah. And if a food makes you, I know you talk a lot about emotional eating. Well, I think emotional eating is totally tied in here, you know? So you look at a lot of these foods that are creating the food intolerances. Well, they are the most addictive foods ever. Like to me, the addictive trifecta is cereal with milk. You've got gluten, dairy, and sugar. You've got an opiate (laughs) trifecta on the brain. And then people feel so bad. They're like, oh my God, I binged on ice cream or, by the way, no one ever has said to me, I binged on salmon, I binged on broccoli, you know, never in the history of my 30 years of being in this business have I ever heard that. But I certainly hear about bread, crackers, cheese. Right, (laughs) right. So even if you have mild symptoms of sensitivity, if they make you feel subpar, then you may be frustrated and just not feeling good and turn to food even more just to Mm -hmm. feel better, get yourself back to level, back to normal. So you're saying it might perpetuate. Yeah, a classic sign of a food intolerance is you tend to crave the very foods that are hurting you. That is a classic sign. So because when you go through this process, and, and here's the thing, we come to accept these things like the your face is breaking out, I have a headache, I've got gas and bloating, I'm, you know, I'm constipated. We come to accept those things as normal. Oh, that's just normal. I'm like, yeah. that's not normal. That is your body going, help, do something, right? But what happens is when you get a food sensitivity, you actually tend to crave the very foods that's hurting you because of the immune response that your body has. So it becomes a total catch-22 because you don't eat the cheese. Well, you want the cheese because you've got these antibodies built up that your body's now going, well, where's the cheese? You know? Yes, <laughs> And yes. so then you eat the cheese, then you feel crappy. And then you feel guilty too, because you're like, I told myself I wasn't going to eat more cheese and you ate the cheese because you couldn't deal with your cravings, right? right? And then you you feel this, these symptoms, by the way, are just low grade bad. Most of the time you've gotten so adjusted to them, you don't even realize them. You just think that's normal for you. And that's, that's the challenge is you pull these things out. I think most people have no idea what it feels like to feel like awesome and, you know, amazing. You're right. right. Then they it's yeah. like, oh my God, I'm not supposed to like crash every afternoon. I'm not yeah. supposed to get these headaches. And most doctors don't even recognize sensitivities. Years ago, I had constant swollen glands, no stomach problems, but constantly feeling like I was sick or fighting something. And finally went to an integrative doctor who did different testing than I ever had done before, who said, gluten, dairy, and soy, you are very sensitive, cut them out, let's see what happens. And it, and you're right, it was life-changing, but no other doctor even acknowledged that that was a possibility because I didn't have the typical gastro symptoms. Well, because prior to all of this, and boy, when I first started talking about this, and you know, I've got a buddy who's this billionaire entrepreneur. And he said this, and I thought, you are so right. Sometimes it takes someone from outside of a field to be able to look at something because when you're in the middle of it, you've been, you've always looked at it this way, you know, right? So I'm looking at it going, well, look at this, like these foods don't work for these people. They must be intolerant to them. And there really wasn't anything about that at the time. This was like a crazy notion. And I'm like going, well, you know what? I'm not a doctor. I can say this. You guys aren't going to attack me. I was at the over here telling people, but I ran thousands of people through this process and went, this is crazy what I'm seeing here, like, you know, symptoms going away in a matter of days, people who hadn't couldn't lose weight for years, all of a sudden losing weight, keeping it off, you know, I mean, and that was enough for me. And that what I'm really excited about now is now it's actually gotten out into the vernacular, like, it didn't even used to be an accepted thing, you either had an allergy, 
or everything was fine. Yeah. It's <laughs> right? actually on menus in restaurants now. I know. Which is wonderful. So let me go back to the Virgin Diet book before we close that area. If we're talking about the seven most common foods that people have sensitivities to, and in that book, do you help people eliminate them so they could then slowly test and add them in to see what they in, in particular should stay away from? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The elimination diet's been around for decades. That's why when people are talking about the virgin diet being a fad, I go, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. The elimination diet's been around for decades. But what I noticed in it was it was hard to do. And they made you pull out foods that were classically, I was like, these are never showing up on this. Like I never see anyone reacting to strawberries. Like it's a outlier. So what I decided to do instead was to make it super simple and easy to do. And I walk you through the process and where I have you pull out the seven most common offenders, but more importantly, I give you the simple swaps so that you aren't going, what the heck do I eat? Cause that's what right. people are like, what do I eat? Right. And, um, and I always say, hey, if you're eating all these foods right now, that's awesome because you're going to see a big result. So I teach you exactly which foods you can swap these foods out for. We're testing all along the way to see how you're feeling and checking in with those symptoms. Then I take you through the process of how you can become your own personal health detective and one by one check these foods out check for symptoms to see if they're working for you or if they're not so that you can create this diet that will work for you for the long haul. One of the things I love about your approach in the Virgin Diet book is that you're giving back the power to the individual to make decisions. The clients I work with now, JJ, they don't trust themselves. They just want to be told exactly what to do, what to eat, how much to eat, and they're not trusting any feedback they get from their body. And what I love about your approach is that it's exactly what it gives them back. You know, I think back, I've, I have been in the diet biz, I started like my first diet at like age 12, right? And, and I grew up in Berkeley. And I was like, you know, at, at age 12, I got acne and I had a little bloated belly. I was a dancer, thin, but I always had this acne and this little bloated belly because I had a total like dairy <laughs> thing going on, which I didn't discover. I went to every doctor around and no one could help me. And then I start on every diet. And I remember being on these diets and I'm supposed to eat X amount. And I'm like, going, I don't even want this. I'm not hungry, but you had to eat it. And I was like, right. this is the weirdest thing. Like, yeah. why am I doing this? Right. It is and a so, really weird concept to have some outside yes. person tell you what to put in your body. Right. Without any testing or anything to figure it out. Like, mm -hmm. you know, that's the questions I get asked all the time. Well, how much of this should I eat? I'm like, uh, it's well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's yes. going to depend on these factors. Let's go through and figure it out for you. And guess what? This is where you are right now. But let's say you go through a big life stressor. If you right now discover, you know, I'm only really reacting to, say, gluten. It's rare for me to find someone who does, doesn't does react to gluten, by the way. We just, most people don't really get it out of their diet enough. But let's say you find that you really feel crappy when you eat gluten and dairy, but you feel okay with everything else. But then you go through a massive life stressor. Well, you need to check back in because you might find that your gut got leaky and you can't handle things for a while and you need to heal your gut again. It's not like we were a static, you know, we've right. got to like right. go, through, you know, so, we're, we're always aware and shifting. So it's not like a lifetime prescription, but more to be aware that right now this is not working for you, but stay aware, stay in touch with what's happening. Yeah, it's really a process. So you will understand, you know, it's a new way to look at your body as a chemistry lab and to learn how to work with your body so that you will not have to worry about your weight and being inflamed and, you know, all the issues that can happen when you're eating foods that don't work for you. 
Right. And then what I deal with on my end is helping people understand that deprivation is optional. Even if they are the ones deciding, okay, I followed this plan. I got rid of these foods. I realize they don't work for me. Still, many people, I don't know if you hear this or not, but many, many people walk around then feeling bad and left out and deprived. And life's not fair because they can't eat what they want, even though it doesn't work for them. You know, I actually don't hear as I used to hear that prior to doing this. And that's what's been super exciting to me, because if you knew something hurt you and made you feel crappy, and when you go through and I have people go through and test so they can feel it, it actually changes everything. Because then you have a decision, hey, you can eat it. You're a big girl or boy, right? You can still if the gluten hurts you, you can still now, you know, but it kind of takes away the allure of it. People ask me all the time, well, do you cheat? And I'm like going, I actually, once I realized that when I eat ice cream, it breaks my skin out and gives me like the worst mucus and, and bloating. Right. And when I eat gluten, it makes my fingers ache. The cheesecake and the, like, they just don't hold the right. allure. Because I'm like going, ah, I know how I'm going to feel. Right. And it's actually super empowering to have that going on. So I think the key is if somebody comes to you or to me and they're willing to put themselves through this experiment to see the results in their body, then they come to the decision more of their own volition. And then there's not the deprivation thing. Right. And you know, here's the thing to really go through this process, you do three weeks where you pull the foods out and then you take week by week and you go and check them. So we're talking, it's three weeks of pulling out and then, you know, another couple of weeks where you're testing one by one. But three weeks is really that point, pain point, really the first week's the most challenging. And heck, we can do anything for three weeks. I mean, it's, you know, and no one's hungry. And that's the big thing. It's like no one's starving. In fact, what I hear from most people is they like the food that um, they're eating now even better than the food from before. So it's not like you're going, okay, you're going to be living on like carrots and celery. You know, <laughs> that's not the case at all. Right. So. Right. There's so many options. So mm -hmm. eating in general, are you a believer in sticking to a certain number of meals per day or snacking, going according to hunger? How do you do it? I'm not a fan of snacking. So basically what I've looked at is everything I can put into place to make sure to, to kind of make success automatic. And so I, and I'm going to look at it from the point of your body is a chemistry lab and foods information. In fact, it's the most powerful way you can change your weight and your health quickly is just to change not just what you're eating, but also how you're eating. And so, you know, a lot of the habits and behaviors around food, I used to be one of those people that if I got food at the grocery store, I immediately got in the car and started eating it. You know, I was always snacking and it came from my old personal trainer habits of having to eat between clients. And so I teach people not to snack and to really try to go four to six hours between meals because that allows your insulin, your blood sugar to stabilize, your insulin to come down, allows you to use stored fat for fuel. I stretch out, I do a kind of a semi-intermittent um, fast and then I like you to go 12 to 14 hours between dinner and breakfast the next morning just because we know these are processes that make weight loss effortless and automatic. And, you know, most of us, for most of us, except for my fiance, who I have to watch to make sure he keeps weight on. I'm like, oh, you make me crazy. You know? <laughs> that's but, my, that used to be my dream. You know, yeah, I was like, but that's not normal. For most of us, you know, if we can put if we can put strategies into place, like really taking time for a meal, sitting down, making them an event, chewing, and making sure that we are eating 
from the trifecta of healthy fats and fiber and protein each meal to keep blood sugar balanced so that we don't need to eat. Like if someone needs to eat every two to three hours, there's actually something wrong with their chemistry lab. Because when you're eating correctly, you should be able to go four to six hours in between meals. You should not have to eat every two to three hours. That whole snacking thing came from the whole low-fat, high-carb diet craze. And, you know, the snack food industry jumped in and went, wow, we can make 100-calorie snack packs and make a fortune because no one's going to eat just one ever, right? I mean, those 100-calorie snack packs to me, I'm looking at those going, and how many did you eat? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. So part of the whole plan of creating those foods in the lab was getting people to eat as many of them as they could. Sure. And and eating all day just became a way of a way of life yeah. in this country. That became this whole thing. We're supposed to be grazing and snacking. I'm like, no, we're not. You know, look at what's happening to your, your biochemistry. When you do that, you're raising blood sugar, you're raising insulin, blood sugar comes down, you eat again, you raise blood sugar and you keep insulin high the whole time. That means you're inflamed, you're storing fat, you're never getting out of that cycle. It's, it's so clear. And then if you look at the research on you know, that overnight fast, people who do an overnight fast tend to have all better blood markers for like cholesterol and triglycerides, all that, but they also lose weight easier. But I'm not a, not a fan of breakfast skipping because I also see that people who eat a good breakfast with protein and fat and fiber tend to eat less throughout the day and eat less in the evening. So, you know, I just look at all the research and go, how do we put this in a common practice? So you don't have to think about this doesn't become your obsession. You know, food should not be your hobby unless it's cooking, baking, all that. But like (laughs) dieting is not a hobby. (laughs) It's not a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's something I deal with also is that so many women in particular are They've lived so many years focusing on being good and losing weight and oh, getting down yeah, just to that being good. Yeah, it just takes <laughs> uh-huh. over their life. And they don't know who they would be if they didn't have this focus, as crazy as it sounds. Uh, nope, I totally get it. <laughs> you know, not only because I have coached so many people with that, but I was one myself. And it was like every single day is a good day or bad day. Was I going to be good today? Oh my God, I ate that. What shall I eat next? What, you know, all that. It's like, uh, you know. <laughs> exactly. So where does stress fit into the equation of healthy living and what you put in your body? And what if you can't get rid of the stress that you have in your life? Well, we all have stress. So here's the thing. You don't actually want to have no stress. You want to have some, it's just like exercise. Really, what is exercise doing if you've done it correctly? You are actually stressing your body and your body's recovering. That's what high-intensity interval training or burst training does You in resistance training. You stress your body, it recovers. And the amount of stress that helps your body get stronger, but you don't want so much stress that you end up in a, you know, curled up in a fetal position. We are all going to face stress. It's And for most of us, you probably can't take the stressful situation away. I mean, I was, you know, I nearly lost my son in a hit-and-run accident and launched the virgin diet bedside next to him in a coma where he hovered between life and death. And I mean, the life and death stuff happened for the last four and a half years. So it wasn't that I wasn't under stress. My gosh, I don't really know for a parent, like what's what's bigger stress than that. Right. But I put massive processes in place to support myself to be able to handle that stress. So I think for most of us, it's really about putting the strategies in place to be able to handle stress. Because if you look at the most successful people in life, they're not the people who are just given stuff. In fact, as I was writing the Miracle Mindset book about that situation, I was like, okay, I want to like success leaves clues. Let's look at everybody in life and what they've gone through, who I think are like people I aspire to be like. They're they're successful, making an amazing impact in the world. And every single one of them been through like major 
life crises, crazy stress, and they were better because of it. And they had tools in place. They did gratitude trainings or tapping and meditation, all sorts of things to help them handle that stress. I think the most successful people just have merely built better resilience. Right. So it's it's a natural for all of us. It's what we do with it and how we interpret it. Yes. And, and that is something you have to actively chase because we're all, you know, there's no way you're not going to have stress. That's right. Now, the hot topic of the day is sugar and what it does for us and what it does against us and whether we should give it up. And I have so many people trying to decide whether to give it up or try to live in moderation with it. And we've come to believe that it's a treat or a reward. And if we don't have it, something's wrong. What are the big negatives, JJ, of having sugar in our diet on a regular basis, like most people in this country? It's so funny. I go, well, what's the positive? Yeah. (laughs) Like I name one thing that sugar does for your health that's positive because I can't come up with one. Right. There's not one. And so in in next, you know, of course, is to really explain what sugar is, because that's where people get super confused. But if you look at all of the major diseases, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, dementia, osteoporosis, immune, anything immune, joint pain, everything. If you there's name something that's not impacted by sugar, but all the major diseases, sugar plays, you know, is a catalyst, if not playing a starring role. And the challenge is is somewhere along the line, you know, and, and I know when it happened, it was about 30 years ago, there was a war going between two researchers, and one felt that sugar was the issue. And that was this guy, John Yudkin out of Britain. And the other thought fat was the issue. This was Bruce Ames out of Minnesota. And Bruce Ames won and totally dissed Yudkin, like completely made him look like a fool. And if you go back and I read his book, he was so ahead of his time and so right. And actually, Bruce Ames had misinterpreted a seven sisters um, cholesterol study and built a whole thing around fat being the problem. And we changed everything based on that. And like this man single-handedly in my mind is responsible for what has happened over the last 30 years. When you often <laughs> watch go, we yeah. now like diabetes out of control, like everything. And it's like this guy created this problem where all of a sudden we took the fat out, we had put more sugar in and, you know, you had people like Susan Powder screaming, stop the insanity, yes, you know, stop yes. eating. Remember all this crap, yeah. you know? And um, I just knew that that was not working for my clients. And if you take the fat out of a diet of a 40 to 65 year old woman, they fall apart. It destroys their whole hormone cascade, and, you know, their bones and everything else. So I don't, it, it always gets crazy to me. And my own mother was like, well, we need some sugar. I'm like, no, mom, we don't. You're just, <laughs> you just like love seeds, candy and cookies. We don't actually need any of that. But I think the bigger challenge cookie is, and it's so funny, your name is cookie. This is so funny. I like, know. I know. <laughs> I was a really chubby baby with a big round face, like a cookie. And it, from birth, literally, it stayed with me. Wow. That's funny. Um, so cookie, yes. <laughs> the deal is we really actually, Actually, though, and this is why I wrote that book is I went, you know, we're looking at sugar all wrong because here we are drinking fruit juice smoothies and, you know, eating this agave sweetened thing and sucking down all the stuff thinking that we're doing healthy stuff. And it's it's just another it's just sugar disguised. It's sneaking in everywhere. So even if it's natural, 
No. Your body doesn't know the difference. Like, yeah. what's the difference? Natural is one of the most ridiculous words in marketing, don't you think? Like, what's yeah. that mean? Yeah. I don't even know what it's, yeah. it means. It's either artificial or it's not artificial. If it's artificial, it's super heinous. Like, the only thing worse than sugar is artificial sweeteners. But the other challenge is, is that it doesn't have to be sugar to basically mainline into sugar into your body. Like, you look at wheat bread wheat flour, right. it raises your blood sugar more than six teaspoons of sugar. So when you're looking at this, it's really that's where I came up with sugar impact is it's really what's the impact this is having on your body. And how quickly is your body making sugar from it? Because you don't want to mainline it, you want your body to very slowly make sugar from the butternut squash you ate, or the lentils you ate, or the wild rice you ate, right? You don't want it to go, oh, wow, there's wheat flour, boom, you know, or corn, boom. So that's where you have to look at it differently. Yeah, really good point. So even if you're not sitting down with a giant nine inch slice of chocolate cake, your body is still breaking foods down into sugar that you may think are innocent. So I like, I really like the word impact, the impact that it's going to have on you when you eat it. Thank you. That was like, all right, so is this food making me have better energy or zapping it? Is it making me gain weight or lose weight? You know, is it making my blood sugar stable or not giving Mm -hmm. me cravings or not? Mm -hmm. And you know, when I looked at it, I went, we've been looking at sugar purely looking at what's called the glycemic index. How much does this raise my blood sugar? But the problem with that is artificial sweeteners may not raise your blood sugar, but they still create major problems. Fructose doesn't raise your blood sugar. It's the worst sugar of all, hands down. But it looks like it's doing so well because it doesn't raise your blood sugar, but it makes you insulin resistant. It can cause hypertension. It creates fatty liver. And But we're all using it thinking we're doing such a good thing. They put on little kids' foods. They'll go no sugar added, and they use apple juice concentrate, which is higher in fructose and high fructose corn right. syrup. And we all think, oh, it's great. It's no sugar added. It's got like little wheat leaves on it. And, you know, a happy kid. It must be good. <laughs> Do you think the food industry in the U.S. will ever catch up with this research and make changes the way we did in that false fear of fat? You know, I, I don't think that it's a matter of catching up. I think it's a matter that they don't want it. It's, it's, it's the financial issue of all of this. I mean, think about the financial ramifications of, of this shift. And the deal is when you do this, gosh, you know, when you put sugar or gluten or dairy into a food, you create an opiate-like effect with the brain. And then they just want to, you know, it's like you want more and more and more. So, you know, if you change that, you're going to take away the addictive nature of food. People will eat less and they'll make less money. Yeah, that's not likely to happen. I see your point. One of the statements I read from you somewhere that had such a strong effect on me and like a real wake up was about being a fat burner versus a sugar burner. Can you talk about that a little bit? Mm, this is such a key one. And, and again, this is this goes down to snacking. If you have to eat every couple of hours, you've trained your body to rely on incoming, you know, food coming in, especially carbohydrates to keep your blood sugar up and stable. In fact, that's what they say. Oh, you should snack. It keeps your blood, you know, blood sugar stable. I'm like, no, it keeps your blood sugar up. You right. if your blood sugar was really stable, you actually wouldn't need to eat every couple hours because your blood sugar would be stable. What happens is your blood sugar dives, nose dives, because you ate something with too many carbs, not enough fat, not enough fiber, and then you needed to eat again and enjoy your blood sugar back up. This is what you you don't want to have to be reliant on eating every couple of hours to do that. If you cannot lose weight around your waist, if you've got a big waist circumference relative to your hips, 
for women that's greater than 0.8, it's like 0.8 or greater for one minute, 1.0 or greater, you are a sugar burner and you don't want to be a sugar burner. You want to be able to go four to six hours between meals, be able to access stored fat for fuel. You don't want to have to rely on that next little carb hit for your energy, right? You want to be able to make it from the fat on your body, right? You want to burn off belly fat. Right. So if you're giving yourself a constant supply that you're eating from the outside of things that are or turn into sugar, your body doesn't have a chance to access its own fat for fuel. Right. And that's why I get so crazy about these these diets where you'll and you'll see them. You ever see someone go on a diet and they look like the smaller version of the same shape? So it's like I would call it the potato on stilts look because they still have I'm like nothing changed here. You lost weight in your face. You lost weight in your legs. Your belly is still the same. And that is classic when you just cut your calories with and keep your carbs up is you can't actually burn off stored fat. You're losing muscle. And that's where people are going, oh my gosh, you're like, you know, it's like I'm, I'm losing weight, but I'm not losing my waist. That's a hugely important thing. That's why whenever you're losing weight, you've got to not just do your weight. Hopefully you're also doing your body fat, but you're especially doing your waist and hip measurement. Because if you're losing weight without losing your waist, you're making yourself worse, not better. Yeah, I agree. And I've seen it. And I've seen it with people who feel so strongly that there are certain things they don't want to give up, mostly sugar and alcohol. And so then they do shrink, but it's because they're depriving themselves of eating when they're hungry in order to keep those things in. And it's not good. Right. I think everybody has to come to this realization themselves. Sometimes I feel like, and I feel like this is probably one of the key things that's happened, which, and this just, you know, is one of the things that I find most upsetting is I think for so many people, they just feel defeated and hopeless. And they feel like maybe this is just who I am. It's my genes, right? Or it's my age, or it's because I'm a woman. And they just, and I, and hey, you know, if you've tried everything, you feel like you've tried everything, you've been trying so hard, it's been, and this is just where you're at, I can see why you go, well, through it, you know? But what I'd ask you is to give it a chance to really look at food intolerance and lowering sugar impact. Because what I've seen over the last 30 years in digging through everything is most of what you're hearing out there is absolute garbage. It is designed to keep you trapped and feeling like you're you're a loser, right? And not the biggest loser either. You know, but I mean in, in speaking of that, even like like those TV shows, they're they're brutal. They teach you the wrong stuff. They teach you to overexercise, trash your adrenals, starve yourself. I remember seeing Jillian screaming at someone going, it's calories in, calories out. I'm like, oh my gosh, you are doing such a disservice. I know. Such a disservice. I'm, you know? I'm actually surprised that none of those people just keeled over from the... I am too. The and I wish them. I actually got, I got, um, I got offered their teen version of their show. They were going to do my program, but it was too far away and I, I couldn't take it. But I went, you know, during that time I met all the producers. I met the doctor on the show who was creating the problem because he believes that people are overweight because they don't exercise enough. He thinks they need to exercise two hours a day and they eat too much. And I thought, well, you're the problem, dude. You yeah. are the problem. Clearly someone who's never had a weight problem in his life. And I'm like, oh, you've no, you just, I wish you would be in someone else's body, be in one of these women's bodies for at least one day and, and eat exactly what you've been told to eat and watch when nothing happens and you think you're crazy and a bad person and you go through all that stuff and you just say, screw it. Why bother? And so what I'm saying is if you're listening right now and you feel you're like going, I so get that, you owe it to yourself to look 
at this from a food intolerance, carbon tolerance place. Because my guess is what you've been doing all this time is just following the wrong set of rules. And your body only knows what you tell it to do. Yes. And one of the dumbest things ever is to go try to starve yourself for cutting calories super low because your body is going, oh, hell no, I'm not going to do this. It's like it's going to do everything in its power to protect you. Yeah, I, I love the idea of just approaching it as a problem to be solved and look at it like a detective or a scientist and figure it out using science and using all the things you've talked about today versus making it mean something awful about you as a person, which it doesn't. Right, it's, right. It's simply doing the wrong things unknowingly, but now we know so much more. And we don't need to beat ourselves up because there's plenty of other people who will do that for us. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? We just and, don't need to do more of that, you know? Right, like, we right. don't need to feel bad about ourselves. That's right. <laughs> you know? This, this is just, to... a, it, it really is. It's just, your body is a chemistry lab. This is just you becoming a personal detective. You go through, you figure out what the heck is going on. Exactly. I'm going to bring you back to your most recent book, Miracle Mindset, which I cried all the way through, I have to tell you, JJ. And I cried on the edits, too. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> yes. I think this through. I've got to edit this. Oh my gosh. I mentioned a little bit in the introduction that this is your really personal story of how you and your son Grant and your whole family got through an awful accident and all of the serious effects of it by working on the way that you thought about things. You call it the miracle mindset. Tell us what you mean by the miracle mindset. Well, you know, um, so my son was the victim of a hit and run when he was 16 crossing the street and literally left for dead in the street. And he was airlifted to the local hospital. The doctors there said because of his injuries, he had a torn aorta that was going to rupture sometime in the next 24 hours. It kills it kills 90% of the people right on the scene. So we were fortunate he was even there. And he had multiple brain bleeds. So the type of surgery he needed to fix that torn aorta was super specialized and they couldn't do it at the hospital we were at. And then he had 13 fractures covered in road rash, I mean, bones sticking through his skin. It was crazy. And they told us we just need to let him go. He'd never survive another airlift. Even if he did, he's like wouldn't survive that surgery. And even if he managed to get through both of those, he'd be so brain damaged, it wouldn't be worth it. And, uh, you know, if you're a mom listening, I'm looking and I'm like, well, he's still here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my 15 year old son was with me and said, so, um, like maybe a 0.25% chance. And, and they said, yeah, that sounds about right. And he goes, well, we'll take those odds. Yeah. And, uh, there's no choice. Oh, heck no. I mean, we, so that's exactly what we did. And, you know, I launched the virgin diet literally from the hospital bed and, which was absolutely crazy. But in looking back and going through all of this, people are like, how did you do this? And my son's doing amazingly well now. We kind of decided at the hospital that first day, we're like, all right, what do we need to do? We asked the right question. What do we need to do to get him to be 110%, which is how I was managed to hold on to hope during some of the darkest times, because this was terrifying on a daily basis. I mean, he didn't look like he was going to even make it to 10%. But people are like, well, how did you do that? And I'm thinking, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. And as I started to look back, um, I realized that it all came down to mindset. And really anything in life, as we know, comes down to your mindset. If you don't believe you're good enough, if you don't believe you're worthy, you probably won't take care of yourself and your body the way you should. In fact, that was the number one thing I heard from my community when people said they, if they weren't where they wanted to be with their health, they said, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel good enough. You know, if you've got a poor self-image, it's going to affect your career, your relationships, your health, everything. So I started to look at this and go, well, how, what, what were the lessons? What was I, how was I able to get through this? And 
in my early 30s, I'd had a mentor in business. I thought she was going to be a mentor in business. In reality, I moved into her house and she spent six months coaching me on mindset. And it were it was all the things she taught me at that time that I brought to the hospital with me because they were just a part of me. Getting up every morning in gratitude, writing down what I was grateful for, you know, looking for the small wins, the little miracles at night, living in forgiveness. I mean, just stuff that was able to save me and save my son during a time of crazy stress and, and help me get this, you know, I basically launched a New York Times bestseller bedside. And so it wasn't something I really talked about, but I kept getting asked so much about it. And finally, my agent, it helped her save her twin sons. She was like, you have to write this book. Right. So that's where it all came from was just so many people asking. And when I realized I could actually put it into a formula, you know, I'm very left brain. And I was like, I could actually put this into a formula with lessons and people could actually learn how to have this mindset that allows you to be able to experience these miracles in your life. They're all around us. We just don't see them. You know, right. they're, they're, they're there. Yeah. But you get what you focus on. So if you're focusing on failure and life sucks for me, guess what you'll get? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And it's a choice. And it takes, I think, being able to stand back and see what's happening or to listen to someone's story who went through it like yours and see that if it worked for you, it could work for anyone. You just have to be aware and be open to looking at it, you know, as opposed to taking a bunch of tranquilizers to get through something to look at it in a totally different way. Exactly. So that was that story. But you know, it's it's interesting you said that because I didn't think about, oh, gee, as I'm writing this book, I'm gonna have to edit it. I also did a documentary around it. And uh, yeah, I relived that story over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, your worst nightmare. Yeah, your like, worst oh nightmare that you got through and thrived. And And how is Grant doing right now? He is doing amazing. He's actually better than before the the accident. <laughs> and um, yes, it really can happen. And we, you know, it really, I credit a lot of that to just asking the right questions. Like we kept saying, well, how, how do we help him get to 110%? How can we make this, this happen? And it was, this has not been an easy road. There were multiple times he tried to kill himself. He had a severe brain injury and he was severely suicidal, which is super common. You know, we just just kept asking that question and looking for help. It's an amazing story. And it's inspirational. And as you said, in it contains a formula that we can all use and benefit from. So I am so sorry that you all went through it. But I'm so glad that we all get to hear about it and can use what you learned what you were able to really see yourself doing. You know, so we're really you. clear. It's funny. I was my other son was over this weekend, who's now 20 grants 21. And first of all, you cannot phase the family anymore. <laughs> yeah. Hard to phase us. Um, we also everyone in the family knows that we have each other's backs. Like, you know, it's like, you know, we will fight for each other. And because we all fought for Grant's life. Um, and we all had to in order to make this work. But um, it's amazing what my baby, <laughs> the now 20 year old can handle because of going through this. And we all agree that, you know, hey, it, it was the toughest time ever, but we are so much better because of it, you know, and, and bottom line is you are stronger than you think. Absolutely. It's we would never wish for some of these things, but the lessons that we take away are profound. Yeah, think of, about, you know, cookie. And this is when I ask people I'm like, tell me that one time in your life where everything was going your way, life was just perfect. And you grew because of it. You know? <laughs> 
I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> Never what time. <laughs> yeah, that's everybody's secret wish, though, was for everything to go right. But it, you're true. Uh, you're yeah. right. It, it doesn't push you and it doesn't make you grow in any way. So you're right. We wouldn't wish for these things, but it, it helps us in life. JJ, this has been so valuable for my listeners to hear your perspective on all these different aspects of living and and not only what to eat and what to stay away from, but living and how to make peace with whatever comes your way. Is there anything that you'd like to share with my listeners about anything you're working on, any plans for the future? So you know what I'm actually working on right now? Boy, it's been a lot of creation for the last five years with these five books, but I am going deep back into the virgin diet and doing a brand new course on breaking through food intolerance. I just I've I've seen the power of it, so we're going we're going back in and really focusing on that. And the big thing I would say is if any of those things I said, any of those symptoms, any of that stuff, you're like on, huh, that sounds like me. I just would encourage you to go through your three-week exploratory process because I have yet to see someone not just be blown away <laughs> by the shifts that happen. Yes. Again, thank you very much. And for all of you listeners, check out the show notes so that you can find JJ and all of her resources. I will have a link there for you. Now, I'd like all of you listening to think about some of the things JJ and I discussed today, and I want you to make a plan to take action on at least one of them. Pick one thing. If you need to make it small, make it small, have some success, and then work on another. I hope to see you back here next week where we will continue to work on your emotional eating and your binge eating step by step until they both become something you used to do. We both know that is your ultimate goal. So for now, this is your coach Cookie. Yes, as JJ said, Cookie is a strange name in this business with my special guest JJ Virgin reminding you that as you search for answers to keep it real, just like you. 